You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. This month, we recognize and celebrate Indigenous Peoples Heritage Month. I think way too often we take the history, the contributions, and the experiences, the culture of our Indigenous brothers and sisters for granted. On this podcast, we engage issues at the intersection of race, culture, and theology, or you can say faith. And my hope is to engage all the perspectives and experiences of people groups in this country, even as I lead with the black experience, my experience, that's what I know most. My guest this week is Danielle Castillejo. She identifies as indigenous, Mexican, her mom is Mexican, and German, her dad is German. And she discusses her experience in this journey of self-discovery, particularly her experience with the church as she reconstructs the narrative around her mixed identity and belonging. She's an advocate, a writer, and speaker. She's a psychotherapist. And as a psychotherapist, she creates spaces to empower others to pursue dreams, narrate stories, and journey toward healing. She's the owner of Wayfinding Therapy, where she works with men, women, and teens who have experienced trauma and leads them to a place of wholeness. You will hear her share and remind us to ground ourselves in the kindness and love of Jesus. We have my friend, my new friend, Danielle Castillejo, um, from the Seattle, Washington area uh, on, on Intersections this week. And uh, I'm so excited because she reached out to me not too long ago and, um, and we connected uh, through Instagram and she brought me on their uh, podcast and we've had conversations and what she studies and researches and as a psychotherapist the work that she does uh interests me so we've just been been connecting um that way in in, in recent times so i i'm honored to have danielle on, on intersections this week to get her insights um as we unpack her story her journey um uh that she's on right now so danielle thank you so much for being here Thank you so much for your for your willingness and, and your time. You're in your mobile office, so I, I, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to make some space for intersections. Yeah, thanks, Phil. It's just it was just such an honor. Like I saw your book, I ordered your book, of course, and I've told you this before, and dug into it and realized like, hey, this this is this is gold. This this is some this is somebody I actually want to talk to, speak to. So. That's when I reached out via email and you were so gracious and responded. Here we are. Yes, yes. So I, I want I want to start with with people knowing who you are, as I do every week with every guest. Um, tell us a little bit about who you are. You, you We've talked before and you mentioned um, peeling back the plaster in the mud um, that has kind of covered your 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 background. And, and people understand what I'm saying in just a few. But where are you from? What do you do? What's been your journey like? Um, to get where you are both personally and professionally. Um, and if you, if you, if you, you like, you can share about people or events that have significantly impacted the course of your life. I know that's a lot of questions. So you just go, you just take it and just share a little bit about who you are. We want to know who, who Danielle is. Uh, I'm a, I'm a Latina, indigenous, German, Swedish woman 
Uh, I live, as you said, like in the Seattle area, more specifically in Kitsap County. And I'm currently on, um, I'm a guest on the Suquamish tribal lands. Um, that's where we're located. My family and I are located. And so I'm married. I have a husband. His name is Luis. He's a carpenter and he's a Mexican nationalized uh, citizen. He's, he moved here. We got married. We have four amazing kids. I have a 16 year old boy, a 14 year old girl, a 12 year old girl and a 10 year old boy. And we speak something of like Spanish and English and Spanglish in between. So <laughs> <laughs> we, we kind of go with how it feels in the moment. Okay. So, yeah. So I love family is like a significant part of who I am. Um, my culture is a significant part of who I am. And that comes into my job as a psychotherapist. Uh, I really believe like, um, I know we share this love of Resma Menicum's work mm -hmm. and how profound it is and just how the body actually tells a story. It, it's an important part of who we are. Um, I know that some current theological frameworks I grew up in and, uh, you know, society and culture here on the United States in the United States have often moved to separate our minds and our bodies. And so part of my work as a psychotherapist is to invite my clients into a space of integrating those and knowing both what both how the mind and the body are speaking together. And I believe that as uh, as our as we are ready to heal, our minds bring us traumas or um, stories or things uh to be witnessed or talked about either with a therapist or a spiritual director um, or another healing presence in our life. And so I operate under the assumption that uh, like my clients' bodies are very wise and their minds are very wise. And, and so uh, try to honor that in what I do. I love that. I love that. Um, your clients' bodies are very wise. You know, I, that, what you just said, I'm sure we can unpack that. I, I used to say when I was a personal trainer years ago, so we're talking 15 plus years ago, I would tell my clients, your body is smarter than you mm. because, you know, you would train someone and if you do the same exercise over and over again, your body makes its adjustments mm -hmm. and then you don't, you won't get the same results that you did when you first started that routine because your body has adjusted. Your body is smart. Right. Mm -hmm. So you got to change it up and you got to shock, keep shocking the body in a sense to, to get it to continue to grow. So I used to use that phrase. It's it, it certainly was not being used as deep as you're using it right now. <laughs> right. But I love Maybe. the phrase. I, I love the idea, though, um, that our bodies are wise. Let, let's mm -hmm. let that just sit for, for a moment, because what, what, what I'm curious about is your journey with this, your, with, with identity. You said you're a Latina, indigenous, German, Swedish. Um, tell us a little bit about that journey. Um, was there any significant person or event? Did you, did you, were you on this journey when you were a child? Did it happen when you became an adult? Um, and, and, and is there a place where your body was wise and, and there was something going on there that, that triggered uh, this, this journey for you in, in, in terms of your identity and, and culture? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, yes, definitely. I think as a child, I had an internalized sense of loneliness or just not belonging. And for a long time, I, when talking about that in different spaces, I spiritualized it or, you know, almost 
pathologized it. Like, why are you always lonely, Danielle? Or what is wrong? And it's not that I don't have my own um, battles to deal with, but I do believe it has something to do with who I'm created and how I'm created. And so I was sharing with you just a little bit like how I actually believe we have this like, we're like this beautiful painting. And then often like, uh, I think of like the Latinx culture, like plaster and mud and like just stuff has been thrown on the painting. And as I've come to know who I am, I feel like I've been peeling back some of that and seeing what's underneath. Mm. So in that peeling back, just discovering that my grandfather on my mom's side was also, uh, he was Mexican and his journey to come to the United States and uh, finding out that he was also from an indigenous region where my husband is from in Mexico. So just finding those little details that feel like I'm coming home to myself. Mm. And it's not like I have more belonging up here in the Pacific Northwest, but I do feel more at home in myself and more at peace with who I am. So therefore I'm more, I don't have uh, such a strong sense of despair. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think for a long time I did just because I thought either what I'm feeling is wrong or it's just that I'm chronically depressed and I wasn't, I'm a, I'm a pretty happy chipper person, but internally I felt that or, or something about my theology is wrong when really it was like, I don't really, I haven't really been able to know who I am. Mm. And part of the not knowing who I am is how I was raised and, you know, everything that's going on. So um, in our current culture, and I was a part of the evangelical white church growing up, my father was a pastor and so just watching my mom constantly being in spaces where she didn't fit or where who she was was minimized or categorized in a certain way. And, you know, it's anything from very direct to very subtle. And I think as a young child, I always knew we were different. I didn't know why our family didn't always have friends. I, I, could, I didn't have language for it and there was no one in my world giving me language for it. But as I become an adult, I can look back and say, oh, now I have language for that. Mm -hmm. I have language for why I probably was gravitated towards my husband or why we construct our life in a certain way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. How, how does this journey or has or did the journey, your journey, um, impact your father um, or your parents, your, your journey? How did, did, were they able to witness and see... Um, you, this this journey of self discovery, especially when it, when when it, when it comes to faith and being a pastor, how has that impacted them? It's been really hard to be honest. Okay, like the journey's been really hard. I think it started with my younger brother, and it started um, it started for me before that, and for him before that. But my younger brother, right around the time that Trump was uh, Trump was running for election the first time he, he was angry. And I was just like, I was, I was upset, but I was just like, well, I kind of have put it at a distance. I hadn't allowed it too close to me, but as I watched him go through his process and even his own anger, and um, I would say almost like a righteous fury at the churches that we, we grew up in and the kind of conservatives, conservatism that was so racist and harmful. I was just like, what, what's wrong with me? Why, why am I not more angry? 
it, it's not that I wasn't angry. I just hadn't allowed it to come in yet to allow myself to be in my body and feel that, mm-hmm. that it was like an actual like violation, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, for us and my family. And, you know, it, it still is continuing to this day, ongoing, very difficult conversations with my father and new and discovering conversations with my mother. It, it, it is not over by any means. So wow. we're still talking about it. When you say you hadn't allowed it, just for, my, for those who are listening to, to kind of grasp what you're saying, you say you hadn't allowed it allow, or allowed yourself to feel it in your body. What, what, is that, what does that mean? And how do we, how does somebody not allow their, their bodies to, to, to experience something? And then how do they, how do they? That's a great question. I think for me, that was part of survival. That's the way I learned to survive. Okay. Like in a predominantly white community with a brown, a very brown family, very brown husband. I'm uh, pretty fair skinned for a Mexican, but do have features that remind me of my ancestors and pictures of my grandparents. And then to have kids of varying shades of color and just to, to, to try to fit our family into white spaces. It just, it just didn't work. Mm. Um, either, either folks would just talk to me, even though my husband speaks perfect English and, and he would say something to them and they would return the conversation to me. And so, uh, it was like, how, how do we navigate this? It was so painful for him and I, that even talking about it afterwards was hard. Um, Not in the sense like we were fighting one another, but we literally didn't know where to go or, you know, or how to choose or where to go to find other community or friends at the time. So I had been raised in a system to believe that like church was the community. And so then to allow myself in which it was so, I did feel the impact of all of that And yet Luis and I had to go through a process together of saying like, we don't, this doesn't have to be the total summation of our community. So we had to let go of some of the things we had told ourselves to fit in. And as we begin to let go of some of those lies and allowed ourselves to open ourselves up just to even just to one another. I mean, honestly, Phil, it was like a process in it. I feel like I'm coming out of it, not totally, but of deep repentance Mm. Am I to God for not honoring my body and not honoring my husband's body in that way mm-hmm. and trying to trying to have us fit into spaces? I'm not saying we won't go back into those spaces, but as I begin to not not to live into shame, not that kind of repentance, but the kind of repentance that is kind and leads us towards God's face mm-hmm. allowed me to actually love my body more and acknowledge like, hey, you have felt like you don't belong. It's because literally you don't. Mm. And then to then then to kind of think of, okay, so where do I feel at home? Yeah. Does that make sense? I'm not sure if I'm asking. No, it makes it makes great sense. Because what what I'm hearing is, and I and I talk about this, I'm hearing the 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 effects of the assimilation project or the white assimilation project. And a lot of people, uh, a lot of my white friends don't understand. The, this this aspect of of racism or, or white supremacy um, is that 
built into our, our society is this idea of non-white bodies having to assimilate, meaning to be, to, to be stripped of who they really are, um, to fit into these, these white spaces. So what I'm hearing you say is that you all had to let go of lies and narratives that didn't allow you to be your whole self. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine when you, you actually, you also include being a woman in, in that, mm-hmm. that as well, you can't come into these spaces as your whole self, like your husband, for, for someone to, for him to say something and someone to not respond to him, but to turn to you and respond to you, that uh, he's not able to be him, his whole self in that space. Mm-hmm. Y- you know what I'm saying? Um, and that's what, what assimilation does. And we don't realize how deeply embedded it is, is internalized. In, in, in many groups, non-white groups, uh, we don't even think about it. But that's what we do to survive, to, mm-hmm. to, to and then hopefully thrive, or we, we call thrive. But I don't know if we can thrive, not, not that I don't know we can thrive, we can't thrive if we can't be our whole selves in these spaces. So with you, with you saying that, and you talked about it's hard with your parents, and it's been hard for even you and your husband, what about your kids? Uh, that that process, like the process you describe of me, and if I was to confront my white friend that did that, then I would be labeled angry and emotional and yep. overreactive. Yep. So I knew instantaneously in the moment I'm trapped. Yep. Not only am I trapped in that moment, but if I defy that, then I automatically know my kids are going to be exiled as well. Mm. They will not be a part of birthday parties and, you know, friend groups. And that's exactly what happened, to be honest with you. Mm. As we moved away from like rigid ideologies, which we didn't hold to anyway, we didn't actually hold to those. And it felt a relief not to have to go to church and have to kind of sit through those things where, you know, you're sitting through a sermon and we'll be the only Latino family in the service and they make a joke about tacos and they're looking at you and you're like, am I supposed to laugh? Yeah. Yeah. Am, am I, is this funny? Like you actually don't ever have me to your house Yeah. and you would never come to my house for dinner, you know? So as we removed ourselves from that situation, it did mean a loss of friends for my children mm. in that church community. There was not, I mean, one or two friends kept in touch, but it was pretty significant, um, the move away from church and um, even the way I was, I was brought up to believe that if your kid isn't in that church context, that church youth group, then they're not going to know Jesus. And what I found is exactly the opposite. <laughs> what I found is the opposite, but man, it's been scary. Like, and the, yeah, it's scary. Wow. So, so have your, have your kids embraced that saint that journey of self-discovery as you have or have they kind of rejected it because or tried to distance themselves because of the the loss of friendships because i know that's a, that's a weird space to be in as a teen or preteen you know trying to figure this out um as adults it's, it's difficult for us mm-hmm. so ha- have they embraced it or have any of them uh kind of distanced themselves from it struggling with it I think they go back and forth, but basically they're like, we're Mexican. That's it. Mm. And we speak Spanish at home. That's it. Good. Good. And so there's been a lot of like pride in that they do feel more like themselves. And honestly, we've, 
we've moved into other friendships um, with more uh, like Mexican immigrants in our area and embraced those friendships and relationships and spent a lot of time in their homes. So there we formed, you know, pulling away from that other community, we formed other relationships that feel very close. Okay. And on and it's been amazing to watch like the elders in some of those communities, like just have a talk about um, sex or just have a talk about relationships, like right to my children and not in a shaming or mm -hmm. um, condescending way, but just having a frank conversation with my kids and, and it, my children weren't obligated to sit at that table and have that conversation, but they wanted to be there. My older two kids. Mm. And it was really, it was really a lovely space just to hear them take in wisdom from other people that have been around the block or to hear another, um, another Mexican immigrant, uh, a man speak to my son and say, Hey, they're going to tell you you're macho. They're going to tell you you're not tender. He's like, but I cry. Yeah. I love my wife. And so to hear that from someone else, it's just like, oh, yep. go for it, brother. Like, <laughs> you know, talk to my kid, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Um, this month is, and I, and I wrestle with the names, just like, you know, we, we've talked about this, just like some people ask me, do I say black? Do I say African American? <laughs> um, I wrestle with, you know, this month is, American Indian Heritage Month or Native American Heritage Month. Um, and I actually want you to maybe share a little bit on that, the, 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 the naming, the labeling, appropriate or not. Um, talk about the significance, though, of recognizing not only the people and their history, but also the intergenerational trauma that indigenous people have experienced. I can speak to my experience specifically, but... Um so I would say like it's for Latinx folks, for the most part, it's erased. Mm. And when we talk about America, are we talking about the United States or are we talking about North America, which includes Mexico? And when we talk about indigenous peoples or tribes or native peoples, you know, from what I can tell, the Aztecs and the Hopi tribes, which are most likely some of my indigenous roots, they were very mobile. They traded up and down the coast. And they had large cities and large settlements mm. where they were expert irrigators, expert farmers. They knew how to work the soil. They knew how to be responsible for the land. So I think it's an odd space for the Latinx community because it feels like we belong to a, a few different spaces, not just to one space. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if you were to like sort out my actual, my blood, right? If you're like 20% indigenous, which I am about 20%, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, that's a lot. Like I could easily register for a tribe or something. And my husband is like, I don't know, he's upwards of 50%. So that means all of that is in my children. But the way the system is set up, Mexicans in particular, after the uh, Mexican, Amer the Mexican, they call it the Mexican American war, but let's call it what it is. Mexican war with the United States. Yeah. They were grafted in quote unquote to retain citizenship. So even if you see your, your uh, census documents or any documents that talk about demographics, it's like race, black, white, what is it? Asian Pacific Islander. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember if there's something else on there. And then it's like, ethnicity, 
Hispanic, <laughs> Latino, oh, Na- Native Americans at the top one too. So, but the truth is when the census person came around, I looked at her and she's like, well, are you white? I said, look at my husband, is he white? She didn't have an answer. I said, well, she's like, he's not black. I'm like, you're right. He's, mm. he's Latino. I was like, but he's not white. We're not white. Look at my yeah. kids. And so I just, it feels to me like this month is another one of those middle spaces for us. Mm-hmm where do we how american are we does that just mean the united states and our tribes were very mobile like the peoples we come from were very mobile and had you know actual like cities and places of commerce like across the borders in texas and arizona so then it's hard to know where where we fit and i think that's a very familiar feeling for Latinx people. It's like, where do I fit? Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 it does. It does. Yeah. And I think, I think people of color, when they're honest, when they're conscious, when they're, when they're on this journey, when they're honest, will ask that same question. Where do I fit? When I say non-white, where do I fit? And this is where the survival skills kick in um, or instincts kick in to assimilate for the mm-hmm. purpose of fitting, fitting in, belonging, as, as something we all yearn for. Um, one of the things that you know, I think about when I first really, years ago, when I first really started to think about something like, say, Thanksgiving, you don't think about what that means to Native people. Mm-hmm. You don't think about what the holiday or, or, or what the, the history, you don't really think about that because again, there's so much that's been whitewashed. There's so much that's been erased. Um, you don't think about the, the connection between the the, the Mexican um, and, and and the native prior mm-hmm. to, you know, the European invasion. We we mm-hmm. can call it. You don't think about those things. But we're in this month, and just like Black History Month or Asian American Heritage Month or <laughs> any any other, you know, Heritage Month. Um, we don't we don't really think a lot about the native native people's experience. You know, I, I think about all the treaties that were broken by the United States government. I think it's something like 370 out of 500 treaties were broken and the rest were violated in some way. Uh, we don't think about the um, the decre- decrease in population. Mm-hmm. We're talking about over a 400 year period, 500 year period something like 90% decrease, mm-hmm. right? We don't think about the week that Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, like three days earlier, he signed the document that uh, allowed them to, to execute 300 Native people in Minnesota during the Great Sioux Uprising, mm-hmm. right? So, so you have, you sign a document to, you sign a document to, massacre people who were fighting to defend the, the land that they, that was theirs and then you sign another document to to free supposedly free people of african descent and, and i just don't i don't understand i try to you know, I'm, I'm gonna get into this question next because this is this is how we how i got excited about wanting to talk to you you know i i want to i'm trying to understand and i, I asked this question Either how or why have the white community historically justified or remained silent 
in light of white violence on people of color. And you, you had a phrase um, that you used, internal psychological mechanisms. Mm -hmm. That's a fancy phrase right there. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on in the end? I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to understand, even when I think about, in, in my research, I'm, I'm trying to get to the, the bottom, I'm trying to, as best I can, understand the psychology behind whiteness, white supremacy, white ideology. Mm -hmm. Shed some light for us in, in light of your background and your journey um, in that liminal space, um, Latina, indigenous, German, Swedish, but share some insights from your research, from your, your observations about the psychology behind the violence, allowing for the violence or being silent in light of the violence that we've seen historically in this country. Yeah, I mean... Great question. I think a lot of us are trying to figure it out, right? Because mm -hmm. we're like, we got to find a reason for this. And then we got to find an intervention, right? Yeah. I think it's probably an interdisciplinary uh, answer. Um, and so even from that, it becomes complex. But we think about Columbus landing in, you know, in Puerto Rico and then the Cortez being in Mexico and, you know, the quote unquote pilgrims who really already had religious freedom, but were looking for more land, free and clear of like uh, regulation, who came to what is now the shores of the United States. This was, <clears throat> they came already with a theological mindset. And they, they came with that theological mindset that enabled violence, allowed for violence against certain peoples. And that's, that's, so, so we're talking about four, five, five, six hundred years of, of thought mm -hmm. right there. Mm -hmm. We often talk about uh, racial trauma and uh, generational racial violence. And we know that that's stored in our genes and in our cells, epigenetics. And so why wouldn't that be the same for white folks? Mm -hmm. We start there. Um, you know, human trafficking, you know, although... Tr sex trade existed in multiple places in the world, you know, Columbus used that as a means to destroy the indigenous populations of the Americas, taking young girls and, and justifying it as they were not human, specifically Taino in Puerto Rico girls. So when we think about the aspects of the psychic psych, psychological aspect where you have a pattern of sexual spiritual, physical domination. We're, we're running into in our neighbors and in our friends, this is not just like, this is not just like, oh, you grew up with this. This is like generations of thought and thinking and planning. So I think I use that as the background. And then I, I know we were talking to have a specific example, like when we're young, like we're created to know instinctually like the truth all little kids right by the time you're four you can you know intent so if you're four years old you may not have language for it but if a, an adult comes up and says hey do you want a hug that child knows if the hug is actually for comfort for them mm -hmm. or comfort for the adult right mm -hmm. that's by four years old so imagine if you will in more recent history you have the mass of lynchings across the United States, right? And um, 
you have families going to these lynchings after church. And at the lynchings, you have young children. You say four years old. That four-year-old instinctually knows what's happening is wrong. And yet at that time had parents that said, this is okay, or saw them laughing and smiling. And what happens when a child can't bear that kind of trauma? They actually kind of like split themselves to survive. We're really brilliant. So they they have to separate off that part of themselves that knows it's wrong because it's not safe because their caregiver and their parent is telling them this is okay. So automatically they know whatever my body was telling me Mm. is not safe with my caregiver. Now imagine how crazy making that is for that little kid. Mm. That little kid actually has to go against the God given created instinct and say, I have to put that over here in order to still survive and receive care from my caregiver. I'm talking to, this happens in multiple scenarios, but we're talking about white folks right now, right? Mm-hmm. And so that that parent of that child, that lynching has intentionally traumatized that child and created like a split in their personality, a literal split from the trauma of that. Mm. And so I think part of what I believe is that, that those, those ways of thinking and believing and uh, traumatizing white folks, traumatizing their own children. I know I could get a lot of trouble for that, but by embracing racist ideologies is generational. And when it gets mixed with faith and um, systems of oppression, then no matter, then there's more splits for a young child. And then these, these, we grow up, we grow up and We've learned since a very young age, uh, specifically white folks have learned since a very young age or anybody that's been through trauma, they learn that those parts of me that tell me what's right and wrong, they're not safe. So they're already stored away. And I believe that's what leads to so much violence. There's actually a separation from an intentional separation at a young age by caregivers and systems and churches where children are actually, you know, not allowed because they're not safe at that age to, to engage their conscience or engage the right and wrong. They've, they've, they have to survive and then they grow up that way. So, and that I, I, I don't know what people will think, but there's, this is no excuse for behavior. Mm -hmm. Because we all have trauma. That's the truth. Yeah. Big T, little T. And part of our responsibility is to work with our trauma and not inflict that same violence on the next generation. That's my job. That's your job. That's white folks' job. So it's not an excuse, but it is a way of saying, like, I'm not sure what the intervention is, but I do believe that's part of what's happening. Man, this this kind of you described as binary existence with the split between what their body is sensing, what they're sensing in their body, but also what they've been taught and what they have to think, how they have to think and believe. Um, the image that you, you gave, the illustration you shared with the child witnessing the lynching and what that does to a four-year-old child, what that does to a seven, eight-year-old child. Oh, yeah. And I had a man, 
I don't know if I shared this on a previous episode or not, but I'll share it again. I had a, a an older white gentleman approach me after a sermon I preached and I shared my grandfather's story. I was talking about racial justice and he came to me in tears. So he's in his 60s. He's, he's got to be in his 70s now. He's probably in his mid to late 60s at the time. Or unless he just had a hard life. <laughs> <laughs> but he was in tears and he admitted as a child seeing his grandfather stand next to lynched black bodies. And he was almost like he was so distraught. He could barely speak. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't, I couldn't see a white man. I saw a white child. Uh huh. What does he do with that image? What is he, how is he expected to, to be healthy seeing his grandfather, pictures of his grandfather throughout the house standing next to lynch black bodies. Because that image is, is, is really, is language that's affirming the violence. Mm -hmm. But his soul, his body has to know that's not right. Mm -hmm. And so he grows up with this. And I'm not saying he was, I don't know the man. I just know the man came to me as if he was seeking forgiveness he didn't ask for it he just came to me in tears not knowing what to do with that mm -hmm. so i've seen what that what you what you illustrated i've i've seen or experienced someone decades later what that could do to a person mm -hmm. i hope he's still wrestling with it enough to get help mm -hmm. you know as i'm listening to you and you talk about the you know, how do we, the, the, the intervention. And so we have to have a spiritual dynamic to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and you mentioned how they, they came with a theology that affirmed violence, right? The dog's protective of you, huh? <laughs> we came with this theology, not we, but they came with this theology that affirmed violence. And it made me think about these revivals quote unquote revivals in the 1700s and 1800s the great awakenings what revival what was being revived so is it possible to truly have a revival that doesn't in, 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 in include a complete deconstruction of what's been passed on to us theologically right I'm a hundred percent. Hold on a second. <laughs> I'm a hundred percent with you. Like you, do, are you reviving part of your soul yeah. and the other yeah. part you've allowed to stay dead? Yep. Is that what's resurrected? Yep. Exactly. There's a sense of, there's a sense of, I don't want to, I don't want to experience revival in those areas because I would actually have to name and feel and repair the harm I've done. Mm, yeah. And so I don't know, like I am not the judge, thank God. And yet I do see what you're saying is sort of spiritual darkness, spiritual malaise that has infected our society. And it comes from places, even of the narrative of like, 
hey, there was this massive revival. And okay, yes, there was. But what was it missing? Like not telling the whole truth. Yeah. Let's tell the truth. You were having revivals and your neighbor was killing killing folks. Yeah. Like, yeah. And what's, and, what's up with that, brother? And we perpetuate the same narrative today. I'm going to a revival. We're having a revival. But the same institution, the same churches that are having the revival are disengaged with the social injustices that are happening around them. So what is revival? Right. And so for me, there has to be a revival has to include this, this, these new eyes, new ears, new thinking, new mind to deconstruct what's been passed on to us. A revival from the very dark theology, destructive theology that's been given to us. As well as what you said earlier, the reintegration of body and mind, the whole self. That's what revival has to look like. And I think that's what makes the process of recovering from trauma so difficult. I often tell my clients, like, this is going to hurt more at first than feel better. Because when I started therapy, I was like, this does not feel better. Yeah. This does not <laughs> feel better. And my therapist laughed at the time. But I often think about that when we're talking about white folks are dealing with those younger parts of us that we've had to separate from in order to comply with the system and actually become perpetrators. That's not an easy thing to engage. If you allow that to sit in your body, and in a sense, it's not just white folks, like a lot of us have uh, harmed others or people in our lives, right? But when we're talking about race and we're talking about this, we're talking about literally hundreds of years where there's been a, a purposeful separation from body mm. in order to do violence. Mm -hmm. And so to invite that older gentleman it's it feels like he was invited back to himself mm -hmm. and then therefore there is a chance for repentance and unless we're willing to do that on a like a massive scale i don't believe there will be change but it won't be pain-free and of course when you're not in your body you don't want to get in a body that feels pain <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you don't want to integrate with places in your life where you have continued cycles and perpetrated cycles of harm like that's part of what's so difficult when you have these splits integration will be painful mm. that's good that's good integration will be painful last couple of questions how has your faith guided you um we talk about the need to deconstruct but yet we still you know as christians we still are hopeful because we believe in Jesus, we, we have the, the hope of the, the, the we have the, the Holy Spirit. Um, we still believe, right? We, we still have hope that God is, 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 is with us um, in this process. So how has your faith guided you through your whole journey? I would see, say Jesus is number one. Like I believe in Jesus and I believe he loves me. And, and then if he loves me, he, he knows who I am. And so knowing that in it, in not like the way of Jesus, that's not in his brown body, like the Jesus that's in his dark brown body, that's in the middle East. That's the Jesus that knows me because mm, mm, mm. he was a very, he was an embodied man. He felt he, he did things right. Um, so there's that. And I also started looking at deconstruction a little differently. Like 
I was like, actually, it feels like I turned on the light and I noticed that everything was in pieces. Mm. And so I don't actually know if I've deconstructed much, but just that it's been, it's never been together in the first place where wow. I've been. I was like, well, now I have the light on like, Lord, what do you want to do? How do you want to bring this together? Like, what does it actually look like to follow you? versus oh i have to take apart the way i followed you i don't think it was ever together to begin with that's good that's good that's good so, yeah <laughs> so you're just you're just acknowledging the deconstruction for you is acknowledging that it was never whole in the first place mm -hmm. so the process really is a process of reconstructing mm -hmm. wow that's a that's a different that's a different perspective no one's ever shared that um, that is never whole in the first place. It's, it's, it's a bunch of pieces. The problem is, well, with that illustration, if we go further, then, every, then a lot of people are just operating in the dark. Yep. And not even realizing that everything is, is in pieces mm -hmm. or broken or shattered. And we're trying to operate with this shattered faith, mm -hmm. pretending that it's whole. Exactly. Mm. And I think, I think it's like, I hear one of my professors, uh, his name is Dr. Allender. I often hear him say, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so often when I turn on those lights, I see places where I've been complicit in the system, like I described to you earlier. And I, I told you about with my husband a bit. And so when I find, when I turn on the light and I see where I'm complicit and I repent, that's a kindness to me. And it's a kindness to my husband. It's a kindness to my children. It's a kindness to my community. And so I, I don't see the integration. Yes, it's painful because it is painful to say like, I messed up or I'm hurt or whatnot and to experience those things. But also it leads to greater connection and joy and love, which is what Jesus was about. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Man, this is, this has been rich. This has been rich. Uh, final words for the for listeners. Anything you would want to share? Anything you would want to? Any any gem you'd want to leave us with? I just I've been thinking a lot about just hope, and like these conversations, like conversation with you gives me hope, or my family or my community that I, we are building, you know, and getting closer, and so. I just feel like it's dangerous to hope in these days. And we don't know if the outcome we're hoping for will happen in our lifetime. Yeah. But I do feel that that change is possible. Like I've seen it in my family and in some of my clients. And that's what I cling to that Jesus is kind and there's hope. Mm. That's good. That's good. Thank you so much for your time your 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 wisdom your insights and sharing your story with us and um i appreciate you i appreciate ah, you thanks phil you're you're amazing to learn more about danielle go to www.daniellecastillejo.com or www.wayfindingtherapy.com i hope you found this episode enlightening once again, I thank you for listening and parking with me at the intersections. <laughs>